on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. And the curious thing is the role of the tourism behind this, in my opinion, because the Tanzanian government wants to evict the Maasai and take hold of their lands is actually not surprising. What is surprising is that we visiting a place are actually contributing to the Maasai evictions. In 1959, the entire idea behind the creation of the Serengeti that was done by the British was also influenced by other conservationists was that Maasai land didn't belong to the Maasai, it belonged to the whole humanity. It's a wonder of humanity. And we all have the right to see that nature and to go there and to visit it and to take pictures. And this is why the Maasai have to be evicted, because their way of life is incompatible with our idea of what nature is. And it's still the case today. Welcome to the End of Tourism podcast, Season 3, Invocations. This season features a deeper dive into the crevices of exile, wanderlust, and radical hospitality with diverse authors, activists, and storytellers. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, and financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. These are dispatches from the resistance. You can listen and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast platform. You can follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. And if you want to continue to see the project grow, you can support us via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the end of tourism. I'll be your host, Chris Christu. Today, my guest is Fiore Longo, a research and advocacy officer at Survival International, the global movement for tribal peoples. She is also the director of Survival International France and Survival International Spain. She coordinates Survival's conservation campaign and has visited many communities in Africa and Asia that face human rights abuses in the name of conservation. Alongside Fiore and the work of Survival International, we discuss the government, NGO, and tourism-led forced evictions of the Maasai in Tanzania and how conservation movements, in bed with the tourism industry, institutionally undermine the very principles they put forth and the world's they claim to care for. Welcome, Fiore, to the End of Tourism podcast. Thank you for being willing to speak with us today. Hello, and thank you for inviting us. I'd like to ask, uh, on behalf of our listeners, where you find yourself today and what the world looks like for you, where you are. <laughs> yes, of course. I am in a small town in France called Annecy, which is in the French Alps, and the world looks very cold. <laughs> and a little bit rainy. Beautiful. I was actually passing through there in uh, September. It's a very beautiful little town. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And there is good cheese. Ah, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. And in fact, surprisingly for me anyways, lots of tourism when I was there. Yeah, it's a very touristic. I'm from Paris thinking I would escape the tourists, but no, <laughs> they're all here <laughs> too. Yeah. Hard to escape these days. Hard to escape the escapism. So you join us today on behalf of Survival International to speak about the ongoing evictions of the Maasai communities from their ancestral lands in what today is Tanzania. These evictions are put forth in order to create a game reserve for trophy hunters, all in the name of conservation. 
And so this is what we're going to dive into today. Now, perhaps for our listeners, Fiore, you could offer us a bit of background into what Survival International is and does, a bit of the history and mission of the organization, and, and perhaps your, your part in it. Yes. Well, Survival International, for the ones who have not heard about it, is an organization created in 1969 with the idea to stop the genocide of indigenous peoples that were undergoing in that moment in Brazil. And the idea in 1969, which is exactly the same idea that today, was to mobilize public opinion, to collect information and inform the large public about what was going on. Because only collectively, together, as a movement, we can stop these atrocities happening. It's exactly the same thing that we are doing today. We are going to the places where atrocities against indigenous peoples are happening Today, not anymore, just in Brazil. We are going in different places of the world. We are collecting information about these violations. And we are coming back to especially European countries, but not only, also to the States where we have offices and informing the world, not uh, institutions, but also large public about what is going on and finding ways to stop these atrocities from happening. We are also giving indigenous peoples a platform to address the world to raise their voices because there is so many important things to say, to teach us, but to tell us also. And it's very difficult, especially for governments to hear. And so we are bringing their voices and we are bringing them also. We are going together to international forums, to important, for example, parliaments, to raise the issues that they are facing. Yes, mostly that is what we are doing. Survival is totally uncompromised. We are not getting money from any kind of government or intergovernmental organizations like the UN or the World Bank. We are completely independent. We live only thanks to individual donors that support us. And that is why we are also not only completely independent, but we are uncompromised and we are radical. We speak the truth. And our only, yes, our only goal is to stop violations of human rights. We don't have any interest. And that's what we are trying to do. My role in survival is to be the head of what we call the decolonized conservation campaign, which is a campaign to stop abuses, human rights abuses in the name of conservation and to try to decolonize conservation. Because the way that we today are practicing what we call nature protection is actually very colonialist and racist. We are trying to change that because it's destroying the life of indigenous peoples. Mm, thank you. Well, yeah, it sounds like an extremely important project and a deeply honorable way of proceeding as far as the administrative side of it is concerned, your principles. And so thank you for joining us today. Part of the reason, as I mentioned, that we're speaking today is regarding the evictions of the Maasai people in Tanzania, in part because of these conservation efforts, as you mentioned. And so I'd like to speak to that momentarily, but first, I'd like to, if I can, read over the press release that Survival International released in June when these evictions began. So, on June 8th, 2022, dozens of police vehicles and an estimated 700 officers arrived in Loliondo, North Tanzania, near the world-famous Serengeti National Park, to demarcate the 1,500 square kilometer area of Maasai land as a game reserve. On June 10th, they fired on Maasai, protesting at efforts to evict them. 
at least 18 men and 13 women were shot and 13 wounded with machetes. One person is confirmed dead. Now, police are going house to house in Maasai villages, beating and arresting those who they believe distributed images of the violence or took part in the protests. A man aged 90 was beaten by police because his son was accused of filming the shooting. In one village alone, at least 300, including children, are reported to have fled into the bush. A dozen people have been arrested. The violence of the last few days is the latest episode in a long-running effort by Tanzania's authorities to evict Maasai from their land in Loliondo for safari tourism and trophy hunting. The United Arab Emirates-based Otterlo Business Company, which runs hunting excursions for the country's royal family and their guests, will reportedly control commercial hunting in the area. A Maasai leader who is remaining anonymous for his own safety said, quote, government has decided to unleash the full power of the military to oust us from our land, leaving many injured by gunshots, children roaming in the bush, and we have moved to sleep in the bush. The government is refusing to treat the injured. Many people are without food, and this is our ancestral land. This is barbaric to take our land for luxury hunting of the UAE leaders, end quote. Another Maasai man told Survival International, I love this place because it's my home. They want our land because we have water sources, and we have them because we protect them. We have been living with wildlife for generations. They don't want the Maasai because people coming here don't want to see the Maasai. Before, we didn't think too much or badly about tourism, but now we understand that tourism is people coming with money. That makes the government think, if we did move the Maasai, more people will come here with money, end quote. Germany is a major funder of conservation projects in Tanzania and is heavily involved in shaping conservation policies in the country that led to thousands of indigenous people being evicted. The Frankfurt Zoological Society funds wildlife rangers and officers, some of whom the Maasai allege have been involved in the latest evictions. Many Maasai facing violence today were also evicted from the Serengeti in 1959 by British colonial officials, and so what's currently going on is really just a continuation of the colonial past. This violence that we see in Tanzania is the reality of conservation in Africa and Asia. Daily violations of the human rights of indigenous people and local communities so that the rich can hunt and go on safari. These abuses are systemic and are built into the dominant model of conservation based on racism and colonialism. The theory is that humans, especially non-whites in protected areas, are a threat to the environment. But indigenous peoples have been living there for generations. These territories are now important nature conservation areas precisely because the original inhabitants took such good care of their land and wildlife. We can no longer turn a blind eye to the human rights abuses committed in the name of conservation. This model of conservation is deeply inhumane and ineffective and must be changed now. So from what I've read, Fiore, this isn't the first time these Maasai communities have been driven off their land. Is that correct? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not the first time. They have been evicted from their land several times. One of the most famous is in 1969, because they have been evicted to create Rengeti National Park, which is a world top tourist destination. And then these kind of evictions in the name of conservation to preserve these natural landscapes were 
committed several times against the Maasai and other indigenous peoples. Another famous eviction is the one of the Maasai from the Hellgate National Park. Is I guess that most of you have seen it as a cartoon in the Disney movie, The Lion King. The Disney movie, The Lion King, is set up in well, the, the setup is is inspired by the Hellgate National Park in Kenya, where the Maasai have been also evicted in the 80s. And that's why I mentioned this, because we all think about that place as a wild nature. We remember, you have watched the movie, that there are only animals in the film. And this is the kind of image that shape or imaginary. And we have the tendency to think of these places as the wildest places, as places where there are only animals. And then we go into safaris, the privilege that can go, and we are expecting these wild animals to be there. And why I'm telling you this, because when I was with Amasai not long ago, I went to their home, which is near the Serengeti National Park, where they have been evicted in 1959. And they have been allowed to live in other two places. One is Loliondo, where they are now being evicted, and another one is Gorongoro Conservation Area where they are allowed to leave, but they are threatened with eviction and they are being pushed away too. So there is no room for the Maasai now. And I was with a Maasai and at one point we stopped. We were outside the National Park. and I stopped into a place because I want to take a picture. I just see this beautiful scene where I could see zebras that they were grazing and the cows of the Maasai and that they were house of the Maasai. So I thought that was super interesting because you could see wildlife wild animals next to domesticate animals and the Maasai houses. And I told him, can I take a picture? And and I was just completely And I say, this is extraordinary. And my Maasai friends say, what do you find extraordinary? This is life for us. Serengeti National Park and, and other landscape would be exactly like that if we hadn't been evicted. And I say, well, we, that's not what we see. This is not what we see. When we see pictures or TV shows or documentaries in National Geographic, we only see wild spaces, wild nature. We only see the zebras. We don't see the cows. And of course, it's not natural. It's an intervention. And this intervention are these evictions. And this is why I say the fact the Maasai are being evicted today from all those places that we consider important for us from a natural perspective, so that we want to conserve and we want to preserve and we want to visit and do safaris. And the curious thing is that the role of the tourism behind this, in, in my opinion, because um, the Tanzanian government wants to evict the Maasai and take hold of their lands, is actually not surprising. Government have been fighting indigenous people since the beginning of the history. It's unfair and it's horrible, but it's not really surprising. Everyone everyone knows this. What is surprising is that we visiting a place are actually contributing to the Maasai evictions. This has been the case since the beginning. So in the Serengeti in 1959, the entire idea behind the Serengeti was the creation of the Serengeti that was done by the British, but it was also influenced by other conservationists, was that Maasai land didn't belong to the Maasai, it belonged to the whole humanity. It's a wonder of humanity. And we all have the right to see that nature and to go there and to visit it and to take pictures. And this is why the Maasai have to be evicted, because their way of life is incompatible with our idea of what nature is. And it's still the case today. I was talking when I was there with the Maasai, with some owners of the lodges 
that they are on the land because the lodges are allowed to be there and pollute the rivers and that the Maasai are not allowed to live in their own house. But that's another thing. So I was talking with the lodges owners and they told me the tourists don't want to see cows. They came here to Africa to see wildlife and they don't want to see the cows of the Maasai because that doesn't correspond with the idea they have about what wildlife is. I'm not saying it's responsibility of the tourists. They, of course, are being shaped by the television and other things. But it's very important. I think that this question of the imaginary, and this is the case, not just for the Maasai. This is the case all across Africa and Asia in national parks. We have been told since we were born, and me including, of course, a Western person, that nature is in good shape, is healthy when it's empty, empty of humans. Humans and nature are not supposed to be together. We are here to destroy nature. So nature has to be protected by being emptied of humans. And this idea comes from the colonial times, of course. But this entire idea comes from the colonial time. But the idea is that nature is there for us to be seen. It's aesthetical relationship that we can have with nature. We can go there and pay to see this environment and enjoy them as tourists. But the original inhabitants are not allowed to live in those lands, impartially sacrificed to build our own dreams, which is quite interesting and also, of course, horrifying. So just to reply to your question, this is happening not only in that park, not only to the Maasai, this is happening in all Africa and Asia, especially, but not only happening also in Latin America, but especially in Africa and Asia, in mostly the majority of the so-called national parks or other protected areas. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I wonder deeply about how something like this came to pass, how cultural or ontological imagination that you speak of came to pass in regards to how is it that a people, Western, for lack of a better word, could come to inhabit a worldview that sees nature as free of humans, even when Western people's ancestors would have certainly, undoubtedly been engaged in the same kind of practices that Indigenous people in other parts of the world are still engaged in today. And that there develops a kind of not just romanticism or romantic viewpoint about nature, free of humans, but also a kind of misanthropy. This notion that uh, this hatred or self-hatred for humans, that, that there's no way that we could possibly contend with these deep relationships that have fed the history of the world for so long. And that there seems to be a kind of you know, what a friend of mine would call deified trauma. And perhaps it's something like the trauma of having lost the commons and our ancestral relationships to nature and then turning it into this self-hatred, right? That there's yeah. no way we could possibly return to that or at least guard it in the ways that it still exists in the world. Yeah, it's quite interesting what you said, because this model of conservation that is based on this idea separate human from nature comes from the loss of commons. It comes from the movement of enclosures and from the first industrial revolutions that were, of course, we know at this point, nourished by 
people being pushed away from the countryside and the farms by the privatization of the land and the loss of common use of the land. And actually, the first national parks were created in the U.S. at the end of the 19th century, which is a time that corresponds to the second industrial revolution. The more we were destroying nature, the more we felt that we needed to protect it. And the way that we create these protected areas is completely linked to capitalism. The more capitalists, the more we are destroying, the more we need to protect. But the way we want to protect is not putting into question the root of the problem in the first place, that was industrialization. So we have the first national parks, Yosemite Yellowstone, in the U.S., created by evicting the indigenous peoples living inside, the land, living in, in those places, and created national parks. These national parks were the idea of white settlers. Most of them were Protestants and Calvinists, and they saw nature as something created by God, and humankind was something sinful. And so the whole idea is that the only way to protect this land that had been created, this nature created by God, is evicting the people living there, because they were also racist, of course. We were in the years of the scientific racism and social Darwinism. Indigenous peoples didn't know what they were doing. They needed to be evicted. And nature needed to be wild to be protected. The idea of wilderness, which is so important in the mind of so many tourists, is actually a mythological construction that is mostly race denying the role that hundreds of peoples have done in shaping the environment and nourishing the environment. There is nothing such a thing as wild. Nature is a process between humans that have been living there and the flora and the fauna. We have evidence today that the most so-called wild environments like Amazonia, the Congo Basin Forest, has been shaped and nourished by indigenous peoples. So we mm. know there has been this process. But of course, nothing of this has been acknowledged in this kind of religious and also racist idea at the end of the 19th century. These are the years also of the expansion of the colonial empire. So when Europeans start the destruction to nourish also the second industrial revolution of the African continent, they also started realizing that the animals, they were disappearing. And instead of seeing the reality that the animals were disappearing because they were killing them for trophy hunting or because they were destroying the natural resources which the animals depend on, they decided to blame the Africans. As the Americans were blaming indigenous natives of America of the destruction of the environment, then themselves were causing by the industrialization, the white colonizers in Africa blame indigenous peoples and local communities for hunting animals, for example, because Europeans thought they were the civilization. And whatever they were doing, the industrialization process was not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem were the local people. This idea, nature should be separate from the Africans that would destroy it, and only open for Europeans that could have with nature this kind of relationship. You were saying the relationship with nature of dependency for living that most of farmers in Europe would have for a long time was not correct, was not civilized. What was good for civilization was to see nature and take pictures, be tourists or hunt. Even the national parks in the U.S., since the beginning, Yellowstone and Yosemite were open for tourists. So there was this idea that nature is good to be seen, to be enjoyed, because that's what they said about American national parks in the U.S. are considered American best idea for the joy or the enjoyment of the people. 
So it's something to enjoy, to see, which is a very different perspective from the people that have to live from the land. And I think this aesthetical relationship with nature, based on a misanthropy, con- uh, misconception, the idea humans will destroy nature, of course, it's always not all humans. It's also a racist misconception because the idea is that some humans destroy more than others, especially the ones who are not white. But this idea is then it reproduces because, for example, pictures or the documentaries or the novels or the newspaper news that they would write about African nature that will influence the way that people, Europeans, were thinking about African nature, where, of course, seen with the eyes of people that wanted only to see the wild animal. So this kind of idea I start reproducing. And as I said, nature of Lion King that we see without animals, as I said, is actually a construction, but it's so powerful and seems so real, even if it's a cartoon, we really think that that is, is the case. We all have grown up with National Geographic documentaries where you think there is a camera, it's like they are filming, that's reality. And of course, that's not reality. The spaces are not really empty or free of human. They have been made like this. And for me, the Serengeti and the case of the Maasai is very symbolic because the Serengeti has been transformed into an international symbol of nature protection. There is a very famous film called Serengeti Shall Not Die. It was done in the 59 and won the Oscar of the best film in 1960, or the best foreign film, or anyway, it won an Oscar. And this film has been done by a conservationist called Werner Jimek. And he filmed this Serengeti sh- showing only wild animals. And at one point he showed them aside just to explain that they are horrible and they are poachers and they should disappear. And it's very interesting because he was one of the first to realize that in order to save these natural spaces in the African independent context, so now that Africans are independent and Europeans can't tell them anymore what to do, what is going to happen with nature? They're going to destroy nature because they are inferior. That was the thinking at that time. So how we can convince Africans to save their own nature? And then is when he started doing this film to show to the world how important this natural park was. And the idea of GMEC is like, if we can get tourism to go to visit to these places, then the African countries will have an interest, economical income interest in protecting nature. Tourism has seen since the beginning a key figure in the conservation industry. Those places are protected so we can pay and go to see them. And by paying and going to see them, we protect them. While the people that are being evicted at the same time, because what we want to see are the wild animals. That is what is promised to us. So that is how this idea has been promoted also through these films, through these documentaries, the conservation industry, which are these big NGOs that gain money from nature protection. That means for creating protected areas and, and kicking out the locals. These conservation NGOs have been key in creating this kind of imaginary, in this kind of language and, and portraying local people as, as poachers. For example, think about the dichotomy. We, we, we talk about local people when they hunt to feed their families as poachers. We don't call them trophy hunters or hunters. We call them poachers, which is, of course, always negative. We portray local people as encroachers, poachers, people that don't know what they're doing. And this is not just natural. This has been shaped by 
a very huge propaganda machine that has been pushed by the conservation industry. And of course, there is behind a colonialist and white ideology, the idea that we know better and, and our way of life, of course, shouldn't be put into question because the entire idea is that the industrialized world is not destroying nature. Tourists is good for nature. Taking a plane and go to Tanzania to visit the national park is good for nature because then you pay and you contribute to create this national park, which is quite curious considering now how much we know that taking the plane is not good for climate. Thank you. Wow, so much, so much on the table there. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is the myth or mythos of the out of Eden story, right? The exile from the land of paradise or of Eden, right? And that notion, that lineage, we could call it, because in the Christian world, or at least some parts of it, people theologically understand themselves to be descendants of, of Adam and Eve. And in the contemporary context, there is, or there appears to be this propagation of that myth, more or less unaware, which is to say, you know, because we were taught that our oldest ancestors couldn't cut it in paradise, that they couldn't take care of the place that they were born into, that they had to leave. And therefore, so too do all of you. So it definitely appears to be this deep mythic current or undercurrent that is pushing people out of their lands, even in secular time, in a quote, secular world. And as you said, in, in the name of independence, right? It's not just that um, the European colonizers found a way to convince the local people that this was necessary, but that the local people ended up convincing themselves over time, not necessarily the Maasai, but the governments, for example, right? The quote, independence movements and that also in the name of nationalism, I imagine. And you mentioned this, this complicity of NGOs in the exile and evictions and conservation efforts there in Africa and in Asia. And you did mention just briefly the language that's used in order to deepen that misunderstanding, right? And I'm wondering if there's anything else in regards to that that you can speak to. You know, on Survival International's website, there is a page speaking to this notion that there are many, many NGOs that are complicit in these evictions and the appropriation of land for conservation. Is there anything more in terms of the institutional actions, perhaps, that are undertaken by NGOs? Could you explain a little bit yeah. more about how that works? Yes, yes. Their complicity is not just in reproducing images and using the wrong language, which, of course, just alone would be a lot, but the conserv conservation NGOs, the big ones. So we are talking about WWF. WCS, Wildlife Conservation Society, African Parks, are actually the people with the ideology and the money behind evictions in several of these national parks, because they are the ones who are influencing governments and influencing the agendas, how nature protection should look like. They have been, for example, pushing hard for the using what is called the Target 3, which in the new global biodiversity framework. Just for the people to understand this global biodiversity framework, which is the agenda of how we are going to protect nature in the next 10 years. So the conservation industry, as we call it, WWF and all these organizations have been pushing to put a goal that is turning the 30% of the world into protected areas. So they want more protected areas. They want more land set aside without humans. 
for the so-called nature protection, which means for tourism and themselves. We know that protected areas are not really protecting nature. We know that because we have the data. What we know is that indigenous peoples protect nature. So we have been saying, why we don't recognize indigenous lands instead of creating these areas free of humans? But that was the conservation industry was pushing, and they were successful. They have, of course, a lot of money, but they have also a lot of influence. Some of these organizations are led by very important people. For example, WWF president today is the former CEO of Coca-Cola. So we have a very, very important interconnection between the industry, the politicians and these conservations organizations. And so they are pushing the agenda. Uh, they are the ones knowing how to write projects and get the money. They have huge, huge budgets. It was calculated by a journalist called Mark Dowie that 70% of all the budget in conservation worldwide was going only to the big five, WWF, WCS, African Parks, I think at wow. that time with the Nature Conservancy and Nature Conservation. Yes, just to explain you, they're, they're not just cons organizations. There are today states inside the state, and they are the ones managing the national parks in Africa and Asia. So they are the, they are in the head. Of, so you get any park in African parks, for example, they are managing parks in Congo. They are managing the parks. So it's not just someone. They are states inside the states. They manage the parks. They pay the salaries of the park rangers, who are the guys with weapons that are supposed to control who gets in and outside the land and capture the so-called poachers, usually just normal people going inside the protected area to collect medicinal plants. They are being killed by these people. These right. people are paid by the conservation organizations with headquarters in Europe and the United States, not by the African government, because usually the African government don't have any money to do this. And as you know, after the natural adjustments of the 1890s, it's very difficult for African countries to get money. All the money mm. passed through these NGOs for, you know, that are, are Europeans. But anyway, so this money for conservation and environment, even Bezos now, the Amazon founder, was giving 10 billion euros to protect nature, to protect nature. Partially this money goes to these NGOs. So WWF mm. got 100 million from Bezos, wow. for example. Wow. And so they have this money, they have the influence. So WWF was set up after the colonization, during the beginning of decolonization, to keep the control of Western in Africa. The idea was to create a fund to pay white experts to go to Africa to explain Africans how to protect nature. This story continues. It's exactly the same thing. So we have these very big conservation NGOs with these big funds, big money that are managing directly, in most of the cases, the parks in Africa. They're paying the rangers, they're paying their salaries, they're paying their cars, they're paying their phones, the uniform, the technology. So the responsibility they have about what is going on inside these parks is huge. When a park ranger, what is would happen usually, torture, kill, rape a poor indigenous person, which only crime is to go inside his own land to feed their family. What the responsibility is not just of the park ranger, because this park ranger has been told that the more poachers they arrest, the more money they get. Wow. And this money, this even this bonus of performance are being paid by these organizations. Also, a not very important factor, the organizations that we are talking about don't get only money from donors, from individual donors that don't know that WWF is actually a criminal organization and they will give money. These people get money from business, of course, mm -hmm. a lot of companies. 
claim that they do a partnership with these conservation organizations, but also they get a lot of money from the governments. US, Germany, for example, France give a lot of money to these conservation organizations. These are taxpayers' money that are being given with the idea to protect mm. nature. And it's very contradictory. We have been campaigning a lot to get government to stop these fundings to conservation organizations where these fundings end up in violations of human rights. But the government is not a separate institution, like an abstract. It's people like us. Mm-hmm. They also think that there's nobody living in that forest. Like, what? Do, how, how do you think, like, what is the problem to create a national park in the Congo Basin? You know, WWF write this report saying the U.S. government, can you give me millions of euros to protect this very beautiful forest in the Congo Basin? It's a pristine forest. Of course, the U.S. officer don't have, doesn't have any idea that actually there are people living inside that forest. And the forest mm. is not pristine. And, and right. so you see how this kind of imaginary can shape also the policies. And then U.S. government now is much more aware of what is going on thanks to our campaign. And there is a law that is back to the House now to stop abuses happening in the name of conservation with taxpayer money. So there is a movement mm. on this. But it's about decolonizing the long process. But yet, the responsibility of these NGOs is not just the imaginary and the language. It actually has a concrete impact. Their money is what is funding the evictions. Their ideology is moving these evictions. These evictions and this model of conservation that is racist and colonialist is reproduced in the field by these NGOs. It sounds like these NGOs, in a lot of instances, double as uh tourist bureaus as tourist ministries heritage ministries essentially for the governments yeah yeah it is they also partner with these tourist operators and then you think that is what is like you think you're going to serengeti to do a tour with this company that partner with frankfurt zoological society and you think you are helping nature Mm. and and i mean a curious thing is that you see for example in gorongoro tanzania you see the crater beautiful volcanic crater there is 250 vehicles a day 250 vehicles a day of tourists that go back and forward there's evidence that this traffic is destroying the landscape because tourists want to be closest to the animal they can Mm. so their guide is not using the road that has been built for this using internal roads and destroying the soil there is noise pollution air pollution created by this car and then you have the hotels inside that are polluting the rivers. And then you see, at the same time, the Maasai with their beautiful hats, living sustainable, that are being evicted while the lodges and the hotels and the tourists are not being evicted. So Mm. you cannot see that this kind of eviction is not made in the name of nature. There's nothing, no evidence that evicting the Maasai is going to help nature. It's done to nourish or imaginary of tourists, of wild nature. And so coming back to the issue of the evictions in the Maasai lands and of the Maasai, that press release came out in June of 2022. I'm curious if you could offer us any updates on what's happened since the evictions took place. Yeah, well, what happened, unfortunately, is that the government took over the area and the Maasai who are, well, some of the Maasai at that time escaped in, in Kenya. Now, when they try to just graze their animals, their cattle, not even live inside, just graze their cattle. The cattle is being confiscated. And for some people, maybe this doesn't sound so important, but just to explain, the Maasai are 
pastoralists, their entire way of life depends on these cows. They need the cows to nourish themselves because they drink milk. When the animals are old, they can kill them and eat meat, but they can exchange a cow for something, for money, and they can buy other things. They need the cows to get married. <laughs> they need the cows to be their houses. They need their cows for everything. They have an extremely complex and, and deep relationship with them. So killing a cow for the Maasai is then killing themselves, is killing who they are. So they, the government is getting their cows. Sometimes they are killing them in front of them, which a lot of violence. But they are not allowed any way to use their land anymore, Loliondo. And the most tragic thing is that also Gorongoro, which is this other area where they were living before, but also a lot of families have been evicted from Serengeti. Now the government is also pushing for them to go. And they're building also another resettlement village, a place where they are putting the Maasai, which is 600 kilometers from where they used to live. They're pushing them away. They are starting to get to take away from their land all schools, medical centers, which is this kind of terrorism attack that little by little they are getting out everything to evict them from the area that was the most visited place of Tanzania in 2019. So the wow. tourists are welcome and the Maasai have to go. And this because a joint mission of the UNESCO and other institutions said that there are too many Maasai. There are too many Maasai, wow. but not too many tourists. And mm. I have to say that it's very curious because the Maasai living there are between 90,000 and 100,000. So that would make 12 people by kilometer square. So these are the Maasai living there. But each year, Gorongoro receives at least half a million of tourists. Wow. More or less, a little bit less, let's say. And those tourists are welcome. And with all the destruction that this produced and the Maasai are being evicted. It's the same story in the tiger reserves in India, for example, just to give an example in Asia, because we talk about Africa. So this is the situation right now. The Maasai were not able to come back to the land. There was a court case about the same area, but for something that happened in another eviction that they lost, the Maasai. And now the situation is critical unfortunately. So, you know, it sounds sounds like whether the evictions are legal or not, they are later confirmed as legal by the state. Yes, yes, of course. Evictions are never legal because indigenous peoples under the international law have the right to their lands. And that's why the name voluntary relocations, sometimes it is quite funny and dramatic because mostly of this time they say oh they really wanted to go from Gorongoro now they said these are voluntary relocations and then we see it's the same as I was saying in India that all the social services that make their life possible are being cut down and they are being harassed every day they go to graze or they go to do whatever they do for example in India to collect plants medicinal plants and the forest rangers will tell you you can't do this anymore and so people in desperation decide to leave their land because their life is not anymore possible. And they are not given the possibility to choose. They are not telling them, you have the right to stay under international law. This is your land. No, they're not being told that. They're being pushed away. I don't think that any indigenous person I have ever met will be willing to give up the land where they mm. belong. That is so important for them. Uh, in the case of the Maasai, where they bury their ancestors, they want to live near where their ancestors are. They want to live in the same land their ancestors are. There are so many places that for them are sacred. It's not that they can just build a village six kilometers away and tell them, yeah, you can go there. 
because mm. they are part of the natural landscape in the sense that they they have mountains where they go to pray. They have the crater where they used to do rituals. They are part of that landscape and, and they interact with the landscape and they just can't reconstruct their lives as if they were robots in some other places. There's a spiritual relationship. That is why this is so dangerous. I keep coming back to this notion of homelessness and not just physical homelessness, but cultural homelessness and that the imposition of that mythically and of course, contemporaneously. So in response, Survival International has created a project called Decolonized Conservation. And for our listeners, you can find more about this on Survival International's website. But I'm wondering, Fiore, if you could tell us a little more about what that project is, the actions and proposals that Survival International has taken up. Yes. Decolonized conservation is one of our main campaigns. And what we're trying to do is, first of all, document what is going on. So we are visiting these protected areas in the Congo Basin, in India, in Nepal, in these places we have in Kenya, Tanzania, we have been talking today. We go there, we talk with the people, we spend time with them and we ask them how the national parks are impacting you and, and what happened to you, where do you used to live, why you are living here now. So we are documenting the human rights abuses, sometimes terrible abuses because the park rangers, more and more there is this militarization of conservation. So these parks are protected by guards that they are the more and more super trained and have weapons and technology. And so they're committing more and more abuses. And so we are documenting all these abuses. We interview people that have been raped, that have been tortured in the name of nature protection. Then we come back and we try to understand where the money comes from, who is paying for this to happen. And so we are informing the public. Uh, first of all, this is the most important thing. We are collecting testimonies of the people that are living this directly, and we are offering them in the website. We call it Tribal Voice Project, so you can listen to Baka, Masai, directly telling you their experience. So we inform the people. Of course, we are not just informing the people and doing our education work, so the, our education work is very important, but it's not the only thing we do. We also do lobbying, and so we ask people to take action. Once that they understand what's the problem, we build campaigns and we ask people to take action, which can be sending an email or participate to a protest. And in this way, we do lobbying to the government. We meet the government. We sometimes help indigenous peoples to come in first place and explain to the government what is happening. Because as I explained, Western governments, especially US, Germany and France are giving millions of euros to this project of conservation. And we achieve a lot because the US, for example, the Congress has proposed a law to stop abuses in the name of conservation being funded by the USA Fish and Wildlife Service. We got a Congress hearing in the US where, where Abaka, which is a hunter-gatherer of Congo, it was a video of him, but he could actually, you know, participate, give his testimony. We organized also other uh, kind of actions in the European Parliament. We got a resolution on this being approved by the European Parliament. So we are putting pressure on the funder. So he's funding, who is funding conservation? We organize also a counter to the Conservation Congress happening in Marseille. So we're gathering the voices of the people that are actually speaking out against it. So we're doing a lot of public campaign. Against the 30%, we organize a worldwide campaign and obtain a lot of visibility success. We create controversy. But the most important thing is that we make people being aware of this problem. Because as I said, 
we are the ones funding this as tourists or just as giving money to WWF and as reproducing this. For example, filmmakers, we are offering filmmakers a guide to decolonize the language to not portray the same images and the same kind of language that other people are doing. So we are trying to change the way we see nature and we interact with nature and then we take action with nature. And so we are trying to do that. And, and at the same time, which is our main goal as an organization, what we want as our vision is to get indigenous people's rights, especially to the land, a knowledge recognized and respect by the government. So or we just not push people to stop thinking that African nature is not wild. We are trying to push people to acknowledge that if the land is in the hands of indigenous people, they are controlling their own land, their own territories, if their collective rights to land are recognized, nature will be healthier. We know that 80% of biodiversity is in indigenous people's lands. The 80% of biodiversity, there is a way to protect nature, uh, whatever we think that is, <laughs> is to recognize indigenous people's land rights. Of course, also to change our way of life, but especially also by putting pressure on the governments to get the land's rights of indigenous peoples recognized and respected. It's extremely important work, and I'm extremely grateful to be able to speak with you today and hear about Survival International's actions. What would your advice be to the people listening to this pod, to this episode, regarding their movement in the world, right? I imagine that most tourists, although you mentioned half a million, it's quite high, safaris mostly i imagine but most tourists are not trophy hunters and so in the context of the maasai evictions and the work of survival international how would you frame action on an individual level for people who perhaps have very little to do with tourism in africa or asia or their notions of conservation do we boycott these places, these organizations, these NGOs? What does solidarity look like for people on other continents? Well, so first of all, I would rather ask people to inform themselves. I'm not really someone who would advise to boycott because I think that it's an individual choice. But first, before doing this individual choice, one has to be aware of where we are going, what we are doing. And I think one of the main things that I always advice to people is this, is to get informed because I'm probably sure that you don't know the story I'm telling you. And by getting informed, I am not just saying just go on the website, but listen to the people. And this is one of the things. And always before going to a place, make sure that that's not land that has been stolen to someone else. So you could visit. So understanding how you can contribute to that and how much you are doing this. The second is, in this case, it's just not even boycott. I think that people shouldn't be giving money to WWF because they are not using the money. They don't need your money. They have a Bezos money. And also, especially, they are not doing the right thing. And I know that a lot of people are desperate to try to find a way to save the environment. And they think that, you know, just giving money to this organization is good. But I think by stop doing things, but they stop having the sense of we have to do something, then we hadn't find the time to understand, to look at ourselves in the mirror and understand that the problem, if we want to solve environmental problems, have to come from a change in our way of living. And that's why I always advise, it's nothing to do with going to Congo to visit a national park and see nature that it's going to help anything at all. Something we can do to save the environment is 
first of all, stop giving money to projects that harm indigenous peoples, start to have a collective and political movement in our own places to change what we are doing, because we are the one harming the environment. By we, I mean Western people living an urban life. This is important. I, I don't really think that, you know, me recycling things are going to get the world a better place. But what I mean is we as collective, as coming together, and that change has to happen here. If we want to conserve something, we have to start here because here is where the root of the problem is. Here is the, the things we are doing wrong are here. And I know that there is a lot of desperation because we are realizing the consequences of the destruction of the environment we are causing. But mostly these projects that we are trying to create in Africa, especially in Africa, but also in Asia, to protect nature are actually harming the people that are really resistant the people that are really building the resistance against the assault of our own society on their lands. Those are the people who are the best guardians of the natural world. So I think we should yeah, stop shouting solutions and start listening to what they have to say and start looking more in what we are doing. And I know it's hard. It's not a self-made solution, but I think that <laughs> believing that there are these easy solutions is, is just part of the problem. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And listening to your words, I'm reminded of Faye's post-activism and the notion that, or the question, the consideration, the wondering that what if our approach to the problem is part of the problem? What if our solutions, our understanding of the solutions are part of the problem, right? And I think it's a deeply important perspective to have and way of proceeding in the world to take. So I would like to offer you a, a deep bow and thank you Fiore, for speaking with us today. It's been an incredibly deepening and illuminating conversation. I have so much that I want to write <laughs> now, just some note-taking and, and uh, reflections. But before we leave, I'd like to ask as well for our listeners, how can they find out more about Survival International? How can they get in touch with Survival International if need be? And like I said, learn about these actions that you're taking. Yeah, Survival has all the possible platforms in social media so you can find us in instagram in facebook and twitter especially we have a website survivalinternational.org that you can visit there are also in several languages in case someone is interested because we have offices in paris in madrid milan san francisco uh, and berlin so there is all sorts of languages that you can find and you will find in our website also the emails of the different offices that you want to write. And so that, that you can do. I personally have a Twitter account, so you, also, you, can, you can get in touch with me by Twitter. And yeah, I, I usually reply to all the messages. So my colleagues are in all the offices are also very good replying to every message. So don't hesitate, even just in a social media post. We usually are very active. We use social media a lot to, to build campaigns. So another thing that is very important for us is that people subscribe to our newsletter because usually we do it also through social media, but there are things that we don't put in social media. And for example, participation to events that we are organizing. So maybe we are in the town where you are and we are going there to give a talk and then you could participate and get to know us in person so all of that we usually do it through email so if people want to subscribe you can subscribe in the website amazing well make sure that uh, all that information is there as well on the end of tourism website so that our listeners uh, have all those resources available to them once again 
Thank you for your time, for your work, for your consideration, and for your give a shit, Jordi. <laughs> Thank you very much to you. Thank you. Blessing. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more, you can check out the homework section under each episode on our website at theendoftourism.com. We'd also like to offer a deep bow of gratitude for our patrons who ensure that the project keeps growing and so that all of you can listen without a paywall. In this way, we participate in the gift economy and invite you to do the same via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. Likewise, you can follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. Until next time, farewell friends. <laughs>